0: So I have a question I want you to think about just for a moment. What's the first thought or image that comes to your mind when you think and hear the word home? What's the first thought or image that comes to mind when you hear the word home? You might be a particular place or space, maybe your childhood home, or maybe a grandparent's home, someplace where it became more the house, but a, a home. Maybe people came to mind. We've moved a dozen times across the course of our marriage, so for me, many times home is just wherever Paula and Drew are. That's home. What do you is a certain heart feeling, a certain heart sense? Home view means safety or, or comfort. It's a place where you can kind of take the mask off and be the most real you that there is when you're at home. Maybe it's a combination of all those things. Home is where we begin and end most of our days. It's what we long for at the end of the long journey. Home is where we belong. It shapes our identity. It's, kind of, it's our place in the world. Home is where we're settled and we're at rest, but at the same time, the center around which everything in our world orients, and out of which we move every other part of our world. So home is a lot more than an address on a street. It's a matter of the heart. Which is why you and I apply the word home to a lot more than just our place of residence. So when the Hilltoppers play games here in Bowling Green, we say they are the home team. International corporations have a home office. ships have a home base. If you have a long project, you say, we're in the home stretch. The wizard told Dorothy, click her heels three times, and say, there's no place like home. And we say, home is where the heart is. The heart is the core of who we are. So this truth really is true, that whatever we make our hearts home will define who we are. Whatever you make your heart's home will define who you are. Where your heart settles is at rest. Where you find your belonging, your sense of identity, the center around which you orient everything, the place in which you move to everything else becomes your home. Now we live in a world of options, and we can choose lots and lots of things to make our heart's home. You can make your career or your work the center of your world. Or a particular lifestyle, certain kind of possessions, or a house, or certain kind of clothing style, or certain kinds of vacations. For some people, it's their politics and their social positions. For others, it's their hobbies or their fun or what they do. The centerpiece around which everything operates. But here's what we find. That many people experience pain when they discover that the thing we've made our hearts home isn't nearly big enough to deal with life as it, as it is. So when the company downsizes, or the cancer diagnosis comes, or he says he doesn't love you anymore, or your dreams die, then we begin to spin a little bit. We spin back to try something else at the center, but our hearts are don't have rest. We don't have that settled sense. And if you're a Christian, it can be even more exhausting. We try to add our spiritual life into that mix. We establish something that's kind of the center point. We've got to put the spiritual stuff in there. You know what it all is, right? Show up on Sundays. Study up the Scriptures so you can thumbs up the things that are right. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Give up and be radical. Give out yourselves. Others. Make sure you're prayed up. Pass on the, the the culture's offers. Pass on the faith. Do more. Do better. The question we've got to answer is this. Is that really what Jesus had in mind when he described the abundant life? Is that really what Jesus had in mind when he said, This is the no life I want you to live on the other side of the resurrection? This is this where our hearts are to settle down and center over? John's gospel records Jesus answer to that question in a profound conversation that Jesus has with the disciples. It's recorded in John's Gospel chapter 15. So if you have your copy of the Bible, would you go ahead and turn there? John fifteen. If you don't have one, there's a there's a black, a hard ground copy of the Bible right there in front of you. John fifteen. Kind of get this setting for you. It's the night before the crucifixion. Jesus gathered in a large upper room, a second story room of an anonymous follower of Jesus to observe the Passover meal. They're going to observe the Jewish feast of deliverance which Jesus' story will reinterpret to become the Lord's Supper for those who are His family. We'll observe that in a little while, but first we want to look at this conversation that, that took place. Now, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have television, so they didn't run away to watch the ball game. They just had a long conversation. And it's recorded for us in John 13 all the way through John 17 records what happens It's a rather long conversation. After three years, this is Jesus' last time with his disciples in this kind of way. Within hours, they'll be scattered. They'll be hanging on a cross. And a few days later, the entire Christian movement is going to be in their hands. So Jesus is giving a, kind of a last, final, intensive seminar. I'm leaving. He says that explicitly, two, three different times. I'm leaving. This is what you've got to know to live the life and fulfill the mission that we've been talking about. And then he comes to John 15, he gives this really poignant word picture of what this life looks like. And so we're in John fifteen, verses four and five. Would you stand, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word? Samantha's going to come and read God's Word for us. John chapter 15 Verses 4 and 5. Let's hear the Lord's word. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Yeah, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Amen. Yeah, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you. May be seated. Thank you, Samantha. I appreciate that. See so here the word there that's, that's crucial this whole passage. Now we're gonna we're gonna go through verse eleven or so, and what you find is that Jesus used the word abide ten times in just a verse. And we're gonna use that word, Michael. What it means is to to stay, to remain, to continue in, to dwell in, or for our purposes this morning, to be at home in. So here's what seems Jesus saying. Christian life, the core of Christian living is for your heart to stay at home in me. For me, Jesus, to be where your day begins and ends. For me to be where you belong and find your identity. For me to be the center around which all of your life orients and from which you move into every other part of your your world. Now, now, some people describe their perspective of becoming a Christian, I saying this, I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And there's certain truth in that, because there's a point of a conversion where there is a union with Christ. For Colossians said it this way, it says, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, that's that's true of everybody that has trusted Christ. Every person that has trusted Christ has Christ living inside of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this abiding goes beyond this initial moment of conversion. And what it relates to is an active choice to live with Jesus as the defining center of the life. Now, notice it's an imperative, it's a command. He says, Abide in me. It's not an option, it's not a, a bonus for those of advanced spiritual standing. It's expected to be true of everybody who says, Hey, I'm I'm a Christian. but here's what's odd. Jesus commands us to abide. He describes abiding. It doesn't really outline how you abide. And so across Christian history, reading all the rest of scripture into this passage, what happens is usually saying, the way you abide in Jesus is through the practice of what we call the spiritual disciplines or holy habits. You want to spend time in God's Word, and you want to pray, and you want to spend time in Christian community, and you want to worship. And, and, so, and all those things are true, and we, we teach that, and we believe that that's to be true. But, but the core of abiding is not just shaking off a series of religious activities that all good Christians do. Because remember the truth, right? What we make your heart's home will define who you are. You will shape everything about us. And as we look at our lives, and we say, Okay, living hope, we say we are a family of disciples who are making disciples, then it just makes sense, doesn't it? That Jesus is to be the center around which everything in our life orients and from which everything in our life flows. But I would tell you that abiding like that is hard because our hearts are fickle, because the world is full of attractive options center your life around something else. We have an enemy who wants to deceive us and dilute the reality so that we're seeing something else in the center rather than Jesus at the center. It's hard. So the question I want to ask is this: why? Why should you and I give our time, our resources, our energy to abide in Jesus? Why should you and I do the challenging soul work Keep Jesus at the center of our life as our heart's home. I want you to see how Jesus describes this life. First thing he knows this when your heart is at home in Jesus, first of all, you will experience sweet dependence on him. It says that I am the true vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He used this agricultural image that would have been very familiar to people in those days. Because the hillsides there were kind of dotted with, with vineyards everywhere. It's of the way, bowling rings dotted with filling stations. Right. They're everywhere. And, and so everywhere you look, and so it's kind of the background of their life. They, they saw all the time the planting and they saw the arbors that had to be. Put up to grow the vines stronger. They saw the harvesting, having the pruning that took place. They knew that picture, but they would have also known the subtle reference that Jesus was making to uh, an ancient truth that all Jews knew. That in the Old Testament, God refers to his people as a vine. So Isaiah says this it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his present planting. I planted you as a choice vine, wholly of pure seed. Isn't that beautiful? I planted as a pleasant planting. So God's saying, I'm your source of your life. I'm the sustainer of your life. And they knew that, but then we know the story. They rebelled, and that vineyard withered and rotted. So in verse one, Jesus says, "I am the true vine." He's claiming to pick up right where, where God was speaking there. He's claiming to be the source and sustainer of their spiritual life. I'm the vine, the life comes from me into you as the branches. That's the way it that works and that's true for us too. Our spiritual life starts in him. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 says this says we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ spiritually dead, wanting nothing to do with God, rebellious God, separated from God completely, but God performs this miracle. We call it a regeneration or being born again. We get His life in our life, and so we enter into a relationship with Him. He called it eternal life. It was limitless. It had no boundaries. He called it an abundant life. It was full of God's goodness and God's hope and God's purpose. But here's the main point. It's an utterly different life. Than an ordinary human life. It's an utterly different, it's not just being better or more efficient or having to act together. It's different than that. It is so much more than your best life now. It is, it is, it is his life in you. It is utterly different than anything else because it has a supernatural source. And so he says, I'm divine. My life is the root of you, and it comes up through you. You are the branches, and you don't have any life in that branch apart from me. The point is to be with him, to be connected to him in his presence. Now, why is this so crucial? Look in verse 5. He says, for apart from me, you can only do some parts of the Christian life. So it does not it. Apart from you, you can do a few things that are really cool and really spiritual. No, I didn't say that. He's apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. You cannot do this at all. Not one thing in the Christian life is possible apart from him. Not one command he makes. Not one character trait. Not one response. Not one conviction. Not one thing. Is possible apart from we describe the, the disciples' life or the disciples' pathway. And we said, What we do here is we, we worship and we connect and serve and equip and multiply. We live these things because these kinds of activities define a disciple's life in an ongoing sort of way. But worship, connect, serve, equip, and multiply, we, we can't do that apart from his life in us. It's impossible. Now, he's driving home even more in verse 6 when he says, If you cut off a branch from its source, it dies. Look what it says. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered on the fire and burned. Now, I don't think this is a picture of, of ultimate judgment. As much as it is as what something that appeared alive looked like it was, but was. Hollowed out because it began to lose its connection to the vine. Now, listen, here's what I want you to see. You can learn how to speak Christian language, you can listen to Christian music, you can retweet Christian things, you can thumbs up Christian Facebook posts. You can vote Christian positions, you can be busy with Christian activities, you can learn how to raise your hands in Christian worship. You can even learn the evangelical way of humming when somebody prays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we learn that you can do all of that and not have a Christian life. Not have a Christian life. That's uncomfortable. And Jesus is pressing attention here. Apart from me, you can't do nothing. Why is he pressing this so hard? I think because one of the greatest dangers of the Christian life is the danger of assumption. That we assume if I just hang around some Christian stuff for a while, it'll say, I got it. I got I'm good. I hung around a little bit, heard a little teaching, I got it. I understand. And the minute we think we got it, and we're okay, and we assume we got everything. Then the Bible ceases to be the very living Word of God. This is our source, and becomes just a manual for getting nice little bumper sticker slogans to live by. Nice little things that oh, I like that. That makes me feel better. Prayer becomes less desperate and more hey, just bless me. Bless what I want. Bless what I got. If I'm assuming. I'm only going to go for what my mind can grasp and what my strength can produce rather than God-sized things that are way, way bigger than me. If I assume I'm going to operate all things by my standard of risk and reward, by my standard of what's worth it. When Paul talked about this later, when he wrote to Timothy, he said, there's some who look, they're going to have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. They look like it from the outside, but there's no real power from the source that is defining this life. Now, listen, some 65% of the American population still identifies themselves as Christians. And if that's true, we ought to see something of the Christian life, something of the Christian powers, something of Christ's life flowing throughout all the places that those people trust. But I think we'd have to understand. That thousands and millions of professed Christians in the United States had the appearance of godliness, but deny the power, are not living connected, abiding to Christ. something else has become the center of their life. Something else has become the core, something else has become the identity, something else has become that which they're punching out of, and it's deadly to faith. Jesus says one of the sweetest discernments you can make in the Christian life is dependence. Another word for that is faith. Listen, the Christian life is impossible. You can't do it. You can't be as holy as he wants you to be. You can't make the kind of impact you want, just on your own. You can't do it. It's impossible. But he provides all that we need to live his life. He's divine, the life of him. We're the branches. His life flows into our life and helps us live the life to which he's called us. So we say it all the time, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Listen, that ain't nearly not nearly quick enough. You need him every every ten minutes. You need every minute, every moment, every second. We need him. We desperately need him to live. His life. What do I do? I've gotten kind of off off base, and and I'm distracted. Something else will become the center of my life. Because what's resulting in my life, the decision I'm making in my life, don't look anything like Jesus. If Jesus will be the center of my life, what do I do with that? You run home to Jesus. You run home to Him, so the connection with His life stays stays open. And connected and moving and flowing. There's a holy desperation here. And I want to tell you, He responds to holy desperation. When we're desperate for him, desperate for his life, he will bring that life. So when you your heart's at home with Jesus, there's a sense of sweet dependence. Not only that, there's also growing fruitfulness. We saw that did you when he said there in verse four and five. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself. If a abides in the is the bears so much fruit. The point of the branch is always to produce fruit. That's why it was planted in the first place. Fruit is the evidence of the life of the vine. So the grapes that grew came from the vine because there was grape life in the vine. When you have an orange tree, you get oranges because there's orange life in the orange tree that produces orange fruit. You wouldn't expect to go and get orange fruit from grape vines because there's grape life that doesn't produce orange fruit. You would not to go to an orange tree and get grape life. It's gonna work that way. What's in the root will show up in the fruit. It's gonna up there. So here's the thing. If there's Christ life in the vine, we can expect Christ's fruit from the branches. Jesus said this. If you look by your fruits, you'll know them. It's proof of life. Then, okay, what's the fruit look like? looks like Christ-like character. Galatians 5, also this Paul says, a fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Say no to my self-pleasures, and yes, it is. It's also in our speech, in what we say, Hebrews 13 5 through yet, and let us continue to offer of a sacrifice of oh, praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Not just praise God, but with what I speak and the things I say, I'm recognizing His authority and His power. Not in our speeches, in our sacrifice, how we deal with other people, will we have to give ourselves away. Jesus said this truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls from the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he calls us to die. Take up your cross and follow me. Die to self. Live to Christ. As we do, that produces more truth, which then results in transformed lives. Look at the description of what happened with the Colossians. The word of truth, the gospel, has come to you, as indeed in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, understood the grace of God in truth. So the fruit of the life slaves, the body in Christ is that we're spreading that fruit, that seed, that life everywhere we go and God's doing His work of regenerating and bringing new life and things are changing in so, the lives. Now, all these things, the character and the speech and the sacrifice and, and the, the impact on other lives, that, that points to the, the fruit where that is. And that fruit's not just for us. We get to enjoy it. The fruit's always to nourish somebody else, right? Give that to somebody else. But it also points away from us to the source. Look at verse 8, John 15. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This kind of character, this kind of speech, these kind of priorities, this kind of sacrifice, this is not an ordinary human life. The source of this has to come from someplace else. And points away to him. The one whose heart is at home in Jesus will reproduce and spread Jesus' life to others. And as we begin to have our heart at home in him, not only will we see that kind of fruit showing up, but we'll experience great power in prayer. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. That's so often misunderstood. As a blanket promise, hey, if I just ask Jesus, I can get what I want. I can get it from Jesus. but know the parameters. If you abide in me, if your life is centered around me and you orient in everything, your home, your marriage, your parenting, your money, your spending, your self-image, your vocation, your work, your fun, your hobbies, your time, everything orients around me, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. How did Jesus' words abide or make itself at home in us? By faith. As we believe his word to be true. So, so when Jesus comes to him, Mary and Martha, when their brother Lazarus died, they're saying outside the grave, and he says, Look, I, I'm the resurrection of the life. He, even if you die. You're going to live, and the one who lives will never die because I'm the resurrection of life. Then he asked question Do you believe this? Will you hold on to this? Will you sink your life and bet your future on this? That's he's asking. Okay, how do we do that? You got a sense of despair at some point in your life this morning. If you don't know where this thing is going, what's going to happen? Do you know that you have a Savior who said, "I am the light of the world, and the darkness can't stand against me"? You believe that? You hold on to that? I'm worried. I'm anxious about so many things. You have a Savior who says, "Don't be anxious, because your Father knows everything you need. He'll provide everything you need." Do you believe that? Do you hold on to that? Think into that. He so, says, you know, I put those two together. Here's what happens. When I, when I ask, he says, you pray whatever you wish. If I'm abiding in him and his word is abiding in me, I put those together. Whatever I wish, what I wish is what he wants. So so when I do that, here's what I'm doing. I'm asking what Jesus has already affirmed, what Jesus already commanded. What he's already directed. What he's already promised. What he's already said is going to be true. So then, if I know that to be true, I can pray with confident, audacious, non-moving faith and see things happen because that's the way God works. So the one who's abiding in him will see God move in powerful ways in response to his or her prayers. Remember what James said? The prayers of a righteous person accomplish much. The prayer is the one who's abiding in Christ. When you pray and you're abiding in Christ, translation stuff happens. <laughs> God-sized stuff happens in your marriage, with your kids, in your in your vocation, in your world, in your worries, in your concerns. Things happen there because there's power in prayer. And as we pray, we're living this life, we want to know Him. So He also reminds us that as we make our hearts at home, we're going to experience a sense of loving obedience to Him. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, because I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. I want you to catch the order here. When Jesus says, I love you. And that's settled. If you hear nothing else this morning, would you hear this—that your Savior loves you. He loved you in your sin. He went to a bloody cross, but He's also for you in His love, out of His resurrection. That's what Paul meant in Romans 8 when he talked about. Let's read these words together. Look what he says. Read together. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody ought to be saying amen about right now. Well, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be celebrating the reality. He says, I'm for you. I love you. look you know way he says, as the Father loved me, I have loved you. The same love the Father has for his son, he'll give to you. It's a family thing. If you're a son of the king, you're a daughter of the king, if you trusted him, What's this mean? You're accepted, you're approved, you're made right, you're forgiven, you're clean, you have peace with God, and you're loved. So you let that Cradled down into the reality at the core of your heart. So I and mean, out of that, you love him back by obeying him out of love. Not a feeling, it's an action. Now, let's look, you're not loving him to prove your worth to him, you're not obeying him to bargain for blessing. You're know, obeying. That's what good soldiers do. It's your obligation as a good soldier to obey what God has called you to. No, you're obeying Him out of love because we trust that the commands of our Father and our King are expressions of His love, and His laws are good, and what He tells us to do is right. Even even if it bumps against what our inside says we want, we obey Him. We obey our commitment to Him. We obey our our callings before him, even when it's hard and painful, we obey him because we do it out of love. Even when it costs us everything, we think we're going to die. That's okay, because when we die, we're going to live, So we obey him out of love. We hold on and lean in and love him. The one whose heart is at home in Jesus will simply trust and lovingly obey him. So there's this rhythm to life, isn't there? He love me first, I love him back. He loves me first, I love him back. He loves me first, I love him back. And we live that way every single day. And all of this, Jesus sometimes says, look, the bottom line of all of this, look at verse 11. Here's why I said all this, abiding son. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus means for us to share his joy. You ever think about Jesus being a man of joy? We talk about Jesus being a man of sorrows on a plane with grief, and that's true, but he says, I want you to have my joy. What's the joy of Jesus? It's the joy of a sovereign king. Who's never frustrated or disappointed because what he says happens. It's the joy of a well-loved son who's all things in the pleasure of his father and never new disappointment. It's the joy of a healer who brings wholeness to bodies and souls. It's the joy of a victor who had the ultimate victory over sin and demons and death and, and hell who sets captives free. Look what it says in Hebrews. Look to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, catch this. The joy that was set before him, beforehand, right? And then he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you're seated, you go take a seat when the job is done, when it's finished, when it's over. Jesus joy is in the completion of God's eternal plan of redemption and rescue which tips into restoration he said it's finished i'm done i've done and listen this Jesus this is what i want you to have not the momentary high, momentary hey, I'm happy, that's good, praise Jesus, but the confident, soul deep delight that no matter your circumstances, no matter your pain, no matter your hurt, no matter where you are, God will complete everything in you for your good and for His glory. He will do that. He will do that because He's going to finish making you like Jesus. He's going to take all the upside down stuff in the world and turn your right side up. He's going to heal every wound. He's going to make all things new because he's going to get it done. So, in the midst of our trouble right now, our joy is in the fact that he's promised and he's never lied yet. He's a dependable Savior, a dependable King. So, the one who's first at home in Jesus will not have a heart that is overcome by despair. But that overflows with deep, sturdy, hopeful, Christ shaped joy. So the question remains why would you do this? Why would you give yourself to abide and live with Jesus your center are like this? That's what Augustine said. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. In our language this morning, your heart will be restless, your life will be unsettled, you'll be looking for all kinds of other things until your heart is at home in Jesus. Where is your heart at home this morning? Can we honest about that for a second? If your heart is the core of who you are, don't forget our truth, right? what you make your heart's home will define who you are. What is your heart's home. The disciples who you claim to be, and abiding in Jesus is your call. That means Jesus is the place where your days begin and end. He's where you belong. He is your identity. He's where you center our rest, and He's the one around which every decision in your life orients, and from which every decision must emerge. Is Jesus your heart's home? some of you don't have that yet because you've never entered a relationship with them. Maybe today is your day. Would you imagine what it might be like to move from a Jesus admirer to a Jesus abider? To live a life of sweet dependence, growing fruitless, loving obedience, power of prayer, overflowing joy. Can I ask you, does that describe your Christian life today? I don't know. Something else has become the center of. I'm building my life around. It's okay. Can I tell you? You never run too far to bring your heart back home to Jesus. You're never too far. At the end of that night, Jesus brought them to the table, and we're coming there now. Deacons, if you, can, you can go ahead and begin to pass the elements, we'll walk through this. Um, but I don't want you to squirm away. Would you hang with me here? And just swarm away from this. So, I want you to be honest about where you are with the Lord and where you are with your heart's home. So, in the next few moments, as they pass these elements, you'll see some questions on the screen. Would you just take those and let those kind of soak through your life and respond as you need to, as the Lord's prompting your heart this morning? But his disciples back to himself. It's kind of a summary of everything he's done before. So then, he took the bread, and they'd seen him break bread before. He took the bread and he broke it, blessed it, and he gave it to them. And he said, "This is my body. This is the, the bread of life." eat this, you'll never be hungry again. So do as often as you eat in remembrance. And he took the cup. they again, blessed it. He said, this cup is the a new covenant in my blood. Blood that when you drink of it, your soul will never burst again. So this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. Can you stand with us, please? we continue to worship together, to give you an opportunity maybe to come here and kneel and pray. And maybe it's time for you to do business with the Lord you know, the first time, or maybe you've experienced that sense of disconnect you know you're off-center, maybe coming and kneeling here and saying, Lord, I've gotten off-center. I need to come back home to you. There's no shame in that. There's great joy and delight in that. So we encourage you to come to Him as we worship together these things